For now, I want to ask you to turn with me to a passage in Luke, chapter 22. So um, find the Gospel of Luke, and then when you get there, chapter 22 and verse 54. Luke had some long chapters. Luke, chapter 22, verse 54, and we'll read through uh, verse 62, and then we'll look at another passage of Scripture. But first, Luke 22, 54. This is something that happens the night before Jesus dies. It's a, a story that you're going to be very familiar with, probably. It has to do with Peter. It says, Then they seized him, they seized Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Okay, now turn over to the um, the book of Acts, also written by Luke, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, I'll give you a second to get there, and we're going to start at verse 5. This is uh, right after a passage that we actually read a couple weeks ago, uh, the great healing miracle where Peter and John had, had uh, healed that man that was begging by the temple gate, and he was walking and leaping and praising God. This is the aftermath of that here in Acts 4, starting in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the same stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If there is a better example of a night and day transformation of an individual in the Bible, I do not know where you'll find it. Luke chapter 22, Peter is a a fearful, uncertain, disillusioned, and and possibly even a little bit angry person who fails miserably to stand up for Jesus' name at a very critical time. But then in Acts chapter 4, first of all, note who Peter is speaking to. It's the high priest, in other words, the same guy whose house Peter was at when he denied Jesus a few weeks ago, and then all of his associates and family members. In other words, this is the exact same group of men that Peter was so frightened of a few weeks ago. Same people. 
but he doesn't sound quite as fearful now, does he? They ask him a question that calls for basically the same answer he should have given around the fire that night, but this time he answers it very differently, doesn't he? So what is responsible for the total transformation of this man? What happened? Now, we certainly have to admit that the resurrection of Jesus is a really big part of Peter's transformation, right? Because, of course, seeing his Lord raised from the dead is going to impact Peter's um, his, his attitude, and, and it's going to increase his level of boldness for, for sure. But then again, even after the resurrection, especially if you read the Gospel of John, you'll see that, that Peter, even after Jesus came back from the dead, was sometimes a little unsure of himself and of his direction. And, and Jesus had to be very gentle and deliberate with Peter when he was kind of nursing him back to health after the trauma and deni- of the denials and the crucifixion. And uh, while the resurrection could certainly account for some of Peter's enhanced boldness, here in Acts chapter 4, there are a lot of other things going on with Peter as well. I hope you notice that. Notice the laser focus of Peter's preaching on the person of Jesus. Notice uh, how, how Peter is willing to call out these men very directly for what they had done. Notice the command of Scripture that Peter has here, that he shows in how he declares the identity of Jesus in no uncertain terms. There is definitely something going on here with Peter. There is some additional power that came from somewhere, and Luke actually tells us explicitly in verse 8 what it is. Chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, comma, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, The difference in Peter's life, in his speech, was the power of the Holy Spirit. And that difference, that dynamic, you need to know this, is available not only to first century apostles like Peter and his associates, but to 21st century believers like you and me, and it's the same Holy Spirit. Core value number six of the Christian and Missionary Alliance says this, and Wes already said it once this morning, I believe, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can accomplish nothing. Without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can accomplish nothing. Nothing of worth in the Christian life. Now, um, that's a great core value, but it's actually phrased in the negative, isn't it? Let me turn it around and maybe say it the other way. It might be a tad more encouraging. With the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can be truly transformed by Jesus in every dimension of our lives, and we can accomplish things for Jesus far beyond anything we could hope to achieve without that power. With the empowerment of the Spirit, we can be truly transformed by Jesus Christ in every single aspect of our lives, and we can achieve things for Christ that we can never hope to do without the Spirit. If you have been walking with Jesus If you've been living the Christian life for any length of time, you know by now the feeling of um, a certain lack of power in your life. Like you're you're trying to climb up a hill, but you can't get any traction and you keep slipping back. Maybe you're bogged down with a sin or an addiction that you can't seem to break free of. Maybe you're trying your best to serve God in some area, but, but it just doesn't seem like your ministry has any power or that anything is changing. Maybe you're just trying to be a good husband or wife or a good mom or dad and and, and you feel like you're just making no progress in becoming the person that you want to be in that relationship. Maybe you're hoping to share the good news of Jesus with someone who doesn't know him, but you lack courage or you lack passion or you lack conviction or you lack assurance. 
Maybe you're trying to grow in your personal prayer life. But prayer to you has just become more of a, of a burden, this thing that kind of sags you down. Or maybe it feels like such a task and, and you feel like when you pray, your words just bounce off the ceiling. I have all those feelings too. I've had them. I know them. As a pastor, there are times when I can feel totally prepared to deliver a message or to counsel somebody or to walk into a hospital room or to have an important discussion with the leadership of the church or something like that. And, but then when the time comes at that moment, I just I feel like I'm spinning my wheels and I wonder what's wrong. But I can also tell you this, that there are other times that are very different. There are other times that I, I may sense a special freedom or a special boldness in, in conversation, or an unusual sense of recall of Scripture, almost like God is giving me the very words to say and directing my thoughts and directing my words. There are times when the process of worship feels like just that, a process. And I just, my spirit is, is just half dead and barely engaged. But then there are other times when I'm worshiping and I feel like my spirit is just being lifted up and connecting to God and I can see more of his glory and I'm filled more with a sense of joy that goes deeper than just the music. What's the difference? Is it just that I got a better night's sleep? Is it just that I had the right thing for breakfast that morning? Or is there something else going on? Is there something supernatural in the mix? Let me ask some questions or make some observations or some about our church, at First Lions Church. At our church, we, we can have accurate, biblical, and relevant teaching and preaching, but do we really see lives being changed? We can work hard trying to serve the people of our community that need our help, but when it gets hard, will we give up or will we press on? We can pray for each other, but do our hearts really go out to one another? And, and what's the difference between just saying words and actually storming the gates of heaven? We can sing spiritual songs and feel really good sometimes doing it, but are we actually worshiping and are we actually seeking God's face? We can have fellowship and we can have a ton of fun together, but are we experiencing true New Testament community? Our leadership can make sensible decisions, but how will we know when to take a God-directed risk? We can give of our time, money, and effort to the work of the Lord, but do we do this cheerfully and with passion? We can console one another in times of pain and loss, but will our words truly bring lasting comfort to one another and the peace that passes understanding, or will they just be words? We can preach the gospel, but how much traction will it gain in people's lives? Now, I'm not downplaying for one minute the importance of good preparation and training or, or the need for hard work or, or, or good, careful thinking. These are all gifts that God has given us, and we need to use every one of them. But there is a gift that is greater than all of these, and here it is. Every true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit, who is God, living inside of us. Every single true believer of the Lord Jesus has God, the Holy Spirit, living inside. Let that sink in just for a minute. Do you really believe that? 
Jesus once said to his disciples, it was the night before he died, and they were filled with sadness at the prospect of him leaving and going to the Father, and he said, I say to you, truly, it is for your good that I go away. It's better, because then I can send you another helper who won't just be with you, he'll actually be in you, and he'll never leave you. And that's even better than having me walk around with you. Now, that might sound kind of odd, but don't we see the truth of that in the lives of Peter and these other disciples? Jesus also said in Luke eleven thirteen, 13, he said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this word more, how much more, is not about getting more of the Holy Spirit. We're going to find out later, it's not about how much of the Holy Spirit you have, it's how much of you the Holy Spirit has. But here, Jesus, when he says how much more, he's talking about the Father's willingness, his desire. He wants to bless you with the Holy Spirit even more than you want to give that perfect Christmas present to your son or daughter this year. You know what that would be like, right? God gets so much more excited about giving you the Spirit than you get about giving that kid that present. And just as your salvation is a gift, your salvation is a gift. You were forgiven by the grace of God When Jesus gave his life for you, apart from any effort or merit or goodness of your own, so also the Holy Spirit is a gift, a free gift from God, both initially when you first come to Christ and then later on in what we're going to call the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is what Peter experienced in Acts 4.8 that gave him this boldness and all this other stuff, and what we need to experience to see God accomplish his purposes in our lives. That's what God is so anxious to give us. He wants to give us his Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. Now, there's a verse in the New Testament that actually directly commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's find it. It's in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5.18. And I want to look for a few minutes at this verse in a couple different ways. Ephesians 5.18 Here is what Paul says. We're going to learn here more about how the Holy Spirit can actually transform our lives and everything about them. Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Simple verse. Now, you can take this verse on many different levels, and we will. The most obvious one is that it's, it's an instruction not to get drunk. That it's a bad thing for Christians to get drunk. And that is true and that is right and that is a very valid use of that verse. Christians should not get drunk. But why not? Well, what does alcohol do to us if we're under the influence? Well, it affects our judgment. It, It affects our mood. It changes the way we make decisions. It even can kind of take control of us under certain circumstances, right? And of course... Affecting our mood, affecting our thoughts, our actions, our decisions. These are the same things the Holy Spirit does, only in a different way. So that's another angle from which we can look at this verse. It reminds me of an old song, and I'm going to date myself now pretty badly. But who remembers the singer Carmen back in the late 70s, 80s? Yeah, He has a song, the lyrics and part of it go like this. New Year's Eve, I came skipping home, I waltzed in through the door. My brother Jojo could hardly talk, laying drunk on the floor. He said, hey, where you been? You look so good. I said, I was in church since 8.02. He said, oh, don't give me that. Even I can tell. There's something potent inside of you. Expensive liquor? I said, no. 
that homemade junk? I said, no. He said, well, then how'd you get so drunk? Carmen says, I've been drinking from the well that never shall run dry. Part of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that it can bring you the joy and the freedom and the sense of well-being that a lot of people try to get from alcohol, but alcohol turns out to be a bit of poor substitute for the Holy Spirit. The other difference is that when you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, your senses are not impaired. In fact, your spiritual senses are sharpened, and that leads to a lot of really good things. So let's dig a little deeper and look at this verse one more time. And in particular, what I want to do is I want to look at the results of the filling of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like? What actually happens when we live it out? What are the effects of the Holy Spirit when we're under the influence? In Ephesians 5.18, Paul describes the effect of drunkenness as debauchery. Some of the other translations will use the word excess or dissipation, which is actually the one I like the most. The, the root meaning of this word here that alcohol leads to, the root meaning is, is wastefulness. Wastefulness. To be drunk on wine leads to a life, Paul says, that is messed up. A life that is out of control, a life that ends up ultimately being wasted. In fact, when we refer to a drunk person as wasted, that's probably the most accurate word we can use. Because that's what he's doing with his time, his gifts, and ultimately his life. It's being wasted. Now this is the exact opposite idea, if you go back a couple of verses, of verse 16 of Ephesians 5, where Paul tells the church not to waste, not to waste their time, but be wise and make the best use of it. He says drunkenness leads to the opposite of this, which is an undisciplined, reckless, and ultimately unproductive life. So it would make sense that if alcohol and the filling of the Holy Spirit are kind of the opposite of each other here, that the filling of the Spirit would lead to the opposite from all these things, and so it does. The filling of the Holy Spirit is going to lead to a life that is well spent and productive and fruitful and full of goodness. And you might say, okay, what does that look like? Let's imagine what that looks like. Well, you don't have to imagine what it looks like because Paul spends the next few verses telling you exactly what it looks like. He details it for us. In fact, this verse 18 is actually a lot more central to Paul's main idea in the second half of Ephesians than we give it credit for. The verb here that says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, is actually the controlling idea, not just for verse 18, not just for the rest of the paragraph, but all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. You see, what happens is this. Paul gives this command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he follows the command with a series of phrases that describe what the fullness of the Spirit actually looks like, and he uses a series of participles, I-N-G words, to do this. He starts with addressing or speaking to one another, then singing, making melody, giving thanks, and then finally, in a, in a verb that might not be a, a participle in your translation, but it is in the Greek, submitting in verse 21. It's all part of the same idea. And this word submitting is then spelled out in the rest of, in, in the rest of five and, and into six when, when, when it tells us what it looks like to submit, to have this, this beautiful submission and yielding to one another, first in marriage, then in parenting and childhood, and then ultimately in our work relationships. And that takes us all the way to the middle of Ephesians 6. Brothers and sisters, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not some exotic, mysterious thing that you need to be afraid of. It is worked out in very practical and down-to-earth ways in our church life, in our families, in our everyday Monday to Friday routines. When we are filled with God's Holy Spirit, our lives, our regular old lives, can be filled with both power and productivity, even in the mundane spaces. 
Let me take a few minutes and just run through each of these participles to give you an idea of what it looks like when our lives are filled with, which is to say controlled by the Holy Spirit, because this is a figure of speech. The Holy Spirit is not a, a gas who fills us up somehow. He is a person. And to be filled with the Spirit means to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. So what happens? What are these participles here? First, we have addressing one another. That's the ESV. Some of, some of your translations will say speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So this verb is basically just a very simple word that refers to your speech. In other words, what comes out of your mouth when you open it? Paul says when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, here's what comes out of your mouth. First of all, your tongue is under control. And your words will be uplifting and godly. And in fact, words that explicitly bring praise and glory to God are going to start seeping naturally out of your conversation. Bible verses, hymns, spiritual, other Christian songs. You won't be able to keep these things out of your vocabulary because Jesus will be that real to you. It'll just happen. That's what you'll talk about. Next we have singing. I know that some of you like to sing. I know that some of you don't like to sing. I've stood next to many of you at different times in worship services, and I know there's different singing. Um, anyway, we'll go on. Um, but um, you don't have to be a musical person to sing or to do the second one, which is the second verb here, which is connected to it, making melody. And that actually can be done with either a voice or an instrument. But Paul says you're actually supposed to be doing it in your heart. So are you like me and, and you, get, you get songs stuck in your head like so easily? I am so susceptible to that. If my wife wants me to have a song in her head, she just sing like three seconds of it and for the next 20 minutes I'm singing that stupid song continually. That happen, happens to all of us, I think, at some level. What, what runs through your head? What runs through your head when you're not saying or hearing anything? What is, what is the internal soundtrack for your life? What plays there? Paul says when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, here's what happens. There's a melody in your heart. And it's a song of praise. And it's also a song of peace and joy, the kind you can't get anywhere else but from the Lord. This song gets louder and more beautiful the closer you walk with Jesus. But it grows faint. And it ultimately stops when you quench the Spirit through disobedience. Making melody in your heart. Next we have giving thanks. Giving, thanksgiving to God was one of the hallmarks of Jesus. People recognized Jesus by the way he gave thanks. It was a characteristic of his. And it's the same way with his followers, the Christians. Giving thanks is something that we do naturally all the time, Paul says, when we're under the Spirit's influence. And notice here he says, for everything. So not just for the things that are easy to be thankful for. Listen, if you can give thanks in hard times, if you can recognize the love and the goodness of God, even in the midst of pain or discipline or when there's a need that hasn't yet been met, if you can do that, that's a pretty good influence that you are filled with God's Holy Spirit. That's a pretty good um, indicator that you are filled with God's Holy Spirit. And then finally, this word submitting, which Paul then works out in the context of our relationships with one another. Spirit-filled living leads to husbands and wives who love each other, and they love each other with that particular flavor of love that each one needs the most, where the husband protects and deeply cherishes his wife, and the wife honors and respects her husband. Holy Spirit living leads to children 
Do you think children can be filled with God's Holy Spirit? Paul apparently thought so. It leads to children who obey their parents not merely out of fear, not merely because they want to be thought of as a good kid, not merely because they're competing with their siblings because he was the better kid, no, but in the Lord. In other words, as part of their relationship with Jesus. Spirit-filled living leads to parents who lead and discipline their children with wisdom, knowing when to be firm and when to show tenderness and grace. Spirit-filled living leads to employees who work diligently, not just for a paycheck, but for the Lord, and to supervisors who treat their workers with respect and view them as equals before God. Now, none of that stuff is fancy or exotic, right? It's just everyday life lived with supernatural power. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's everyday life, everything you do in life lived with supernatural power. But what if everyone at First Alliance Church lived like this? What if we were all filled with the Spirit all the time? Do you think that would impact our world at all? Do you think that that we'd be a more effective kingdom outpost if we were all continuously under the control of God's Spirit? What about you? Do Paul's words in Ephesians 5 and 6 describe your relationships with your spouse, with your parents and kids, and with the people at work? Would you like your relationships to be like that? Would you like your conversation to be filled with the words that Jesus would say to people? Would you like to go through even, even the, the most painful times of life with that background melody of peace and joy in your heart? Would you like to be more thankful all the time for all the things that God leads you through? Then you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so great. How do I get this, this filling? How do I get this fullness of the Spirit we've been talking about? God wants to give us this gift. We said that, so he's ready to give it to us. But how do we get in a position where we can receive it? That would seem to be important. Now, I just have two words for you, and I think a few weeks ago we talked about Jesus as sanctifier. I had four words, but I'm going to narrow it down to two for today. And the first word is one that you've heard before. It's surrender. Surrender. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal jolt of energy. He's not like a, a, a can of Christian Red Bull that, you know, you just inject somehow into your system and, and you get a super turbo boost for the Christian life that you can turn on and off at will. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. In fact, he's God. And he's a person with a personality and a will and an agenda. He has a plan for your life. And in order to experience this empowerment, you're going to need to get on his page, which probably means giving some things up not the least of which is the illusion that you can make all your own decisions. There are some areas of life that we can hold back from the Spirit, and when we do that, we quench His influence in our lives. We might say stuff like this, Spirit, I want your power in my life, but I control my money. Spirit, I want your power in my life, but you can't tell me whom to date or marry. Spirit, I want your power in my life, but don't mess with my career track. I want your power in my life, but I will tell you where, when, and how that I would like to serve in your church. These are things that don't fly with the Holy Spirit. And some of you may need to leave them up here at the altar today if you really want to know what it's like to be filled with the Spirit of God. Which leads me to the other word, which is thirst. Thirst. Jesus in John 7, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. 
and he says that it's a gift, and he describes it as rivers of living water flowing out of a person. And then he says that gift, that dynamic, is available to a certain kind of person. Who is it? It's the person who's thirsty. It's the person, the the only real qualification Jesus has there for spirit filling is that you have to want it badly. I want to show you a video now that that, um, I've been showing videos at the beginning, but this one's, I think, particularly powerful in some ways. And I want to show you a video now that I think will give you a really good example of what this thirst looks like. It's a testimony of an Alliance pastor and seminary professor by the name of Ron Walborn, and he's been on his own journey with the Holy Spirit. And this testimony is kind of how it started. In the summer of 1986, I was about a month away from beginning my first church ministry. Uh, We were at a summer camp and my wife and I were attending the evening service. There was a pastor who was preaching on the filling of the Holy Spirit. At the end of the sermon, uh, I looked at my wife and I said, we have to go forward because we can't begin ministry without the filling of the Holy Spirit, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so we both went forward to the altar and we knelt there. And uh, before we knew it, this man had come up and asked if he could pray with us. He began to pray, uh, asking that God would fill us with the Holy Spirit. And he maybe prayed a minute, not much more than a minute. And then he announced, there, it's done. And I looked at him and I looked at my wife and I said, are you sure? I really believe there should be some evidence that a person had been filled with the Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozer said he had never met a man or a woman who'd been filled with the Holy Spirit and did not know it. Well, I didn't know it. I didn't feel it. Two days later, my wife and I ended up in in an argument and she looked at me and said, nothing happened to you. And I agreed and of course added, nothing happened to you either. And then we began to pray and ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit. The Lord really used that because it created a hunger in us. It, It made us begin to search and desire, not for any particular gift or manifestation, but for more of God, for his empowering presence. Uh, Over the next few weeks and months, we uh, started ministry and there were good things happening in our church, but I knew there had to be more. In fact, I was very tired as I felt like we were doing most of our ministry in our own strength. And so around Christmas time, I remember saying to my wife, if there's not some more, if there's not more power somewhere, we can't do this. Uh, We have to quit and go do something that doesn't require this amount of, of effort. One of my elders came to me in January and he showed me a brochure from a conference that was being held in California. And it was a conference on the present day work of the Holy Spirit. We decided that I would make this trip and attend this conference. At that conference, I saw people uh, loving God, worshiping, experiencing his presence in ways that, that I'd really never experienced myself. Through the week, I heard good biblical preaching. Uh, There was a strong emphasis on mission and empowerment for reaching the nations for the gospel of Christ. And I continued to grow in my hunger for God to do something new and fresh. There was a man who was also attending the conference and he was uh, a worker, a ministry worker at this church. And he kept coming up to me. He came up to me on the first night and he said, son, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And I said, yes, that's why I'm here. And he looked at me and said, you're not ready and walked away. And he came to me the next day and said the same thing. Do you want to be filled with the love of the Father? And I said, yes, that's why I'm here. And again, he shook his head and said, you're not ready and walked away. And so with my hunger, my frustration was also growing 
But I kept pressing in. I, I kept asking God to do everything he wanted to do. And so finally on Friday night, when they asked pastors to come forward who needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I think I ran to the front. And as I stood there, uh, who showed up but this man? And he looked at me and he said, son, are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? And as I looked at him and prepared to say yes, what came out of my mouth was just cries. And I started to sob. And he looked at me and he said, ah, son, you're ready. And he put his arms around me and prayed that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit. And as I stood there, God met me in a powerful way. In Ephesians, it says that we're sealed by the love of his spirit. And that's what it felt like God did in that moment. When I returned from that conference, there was a noticeable difference in my life, in my ministry, um, in my marriage. Uh, my wife noticed the difference and she really liked it because I loved her more. I loved the people that God had called me to serve more. Uh, there was power in my preaching. We saw people begin to get healed and saved and set free from sins that had kept them bound for years. What I learned in that experience and in other experiences as God has met me and filled me again and again is that without the empowering of God's Holy Spirit, this ministry that we're called to is impossible. So what do you think? Are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? Do you long for a Christianity that goes beyond mere compliance with the rules and actually changes your heart? that revolutionizes your relationships, that goes beyond mere activity to God-empowered ministry? Are you, are you content just checking boxes and fulfilling the requirements of the average American Christian life? Or are you looking for something more? Are you satisfied with where you are now with Jesus, or do you long for more of Him, and you know there's more somewhere, there's got to be? Are you ready to be filled with the love of the Father? First, to be overpowered by it, and then to have it rush out of you into the lives of other people, then let me invite you, during the worship time that we have left this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I pray. As we worship God, let me invite you to come to the front and do business with God. You can come to the altar and just pray by yourself. I'm going to ask all the elders and those who would like to, to pray with people um, about the Spirit's filling to come forward at the very beginning of this time if you want to approach somebody and pray together and just seek that filling of the Holy Spirit together. If you have something that you've recognized that is in your way, something you've been holding back from God and you know that it's keeping you from really operating with God's fullness in your life and you need to lay that here at the altar and then tell somebody that that's what you did, let me invite you to do that. Uh, we're not in control of the Holy Spirit. He can do whatever He wants to with you, but if you know that you need more of God and you need to surrender to Him and He's made you thirsty, then come forward and just spend some time up at the front while we sing these last two songs, and we'll take our time, and uh, we'll just do with whatever the Spirit leads us in. <laughs>